Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. This installment, The Scarlet Thread, by Jacques Futrell. Read by Perry F. Bruns. Chapter 1. The Thinking Machine, Professor Augustus S.F.X. Van Dusen, Ph.D., L.L.D., F.R.S., M.D., etc., Scientist and Logician, listened intently and without comment to a weird, seemingly inexplicable story. Hutchinson Hatch, reporter, was telling it. The bowed figure of the savant lay at ease in a large chair. The enormous head with its bushy yellow hair was thrown back, the thin white fingers were pressed tip to tip, and the blue eyes, narrowed to mere slits, squinted aggressively upward. The scientist was in a receptive mood. From the beginning, every fact you know 
he had requested. It's all out in the back bay, the reporter explained. There is a big apartment house there, a fashionable establishment, in a side street just off Commonwealth Avenue. It is five stories in all and is cut up into small suites of two and three rooms with bath. These suites are handsomely, even luxuriously furnished, and are occupied by people who can afford to pay big rents. Generally, these are young, unmarried men, although in several cases they are husband and wife. It is a house of every modern improvement. Elevator service, hall boys, livery doormen, spacious corridors, and all that. It has both the gas and electric systems of lighting. Tenants are at liberty to use either or both. A young broker, Weldon Henley, occupies one of the handsomest of these suites, being on the second floor in front. He has met with considerable success in the street. He is a bachelor and lives there alone. There is no personal servant. He dabbles in photography as a hobby and is said to be remarkably expert. Recently, there was a report that he was to be married this winter to a beautiful Virginia girl who has been visiting Boston from time to time, a Ms. Lipscomb, Charlotte Lipscomb of Richmond. Henley has never denied or affirmed this rumor, although he has been asked about it often. Miss Lipscomb is impossible of access even when she visits Boston. Now she is in Virginia, I understand, but will return to Boston later in the season. The reporter paused, lighted a cigarette, and leaned forward in his chair, gazing steadily into the inscrutable eyes of the scientist. When Henley took the suite, he requested that all the electric lighting apparatus be removed from his apartments. He had taken a long lease of the place, and this was done. Therefore, he uses only gas for lighting purposes, and he usually keeps one of his gas jets burning low all night. Bad. Bad for his health, commented the scientist. Now comes the mystery of the affair, the reporter went on. It was five or six weeks ago Henley retired as usual, about midnight. He locked his door on the inside, he is positive of that, and awoke about four o'clock in the morning nearly asphyxiated by gas. He was barely able to get up and open the window to let in the fresh air. The gas jet he had left burning was out, and the suite was full of gas. Accident, possibly, said the thinking machine. A draft through the apartments, a slight diminution of gas pressure, a hundred possibilities. So it was presumed, said the reporter. Of course, it would have been impossible for... Nothing is impossible, said the other, tartly. Don't say that. It annoys me exceedingly. Well, then, it seems highly improbable that the door had been opened or that anyone came into the room and did this deliberately. The newspaper man went on with a slight smile. So Henley said nothing about this, attributed it to accident. The next night he lighted his gas as usual, but he left it burning a little brighter. The same thing happened again. Ah! And the thinking machine changed his position a little. A second time. And again he awoke just in time to save himself, said Hatch. Still, he attributed the affair to accident, and determined to avoid a recurrence of the affair by doing away with the gas at night. Then he got a small night lamp and used this for a week or more. 
Why does he have a light at all? asked the scientist testily. I can hardly answer that, replied Hatch. I may say, however, that he is of a very nervous temperament, and gets up frequently during the night. He reads occasionally when he can't sleep. In addition to that, he has slept with a light going all his life. It's a habit. Go on. One night he looked for the night lamp, but it had disappeared. At least he couldn't find it. So he lighted the gas again. The fact of the gas having twice before gone out had been dismissed as a serious possibility. Next morning at five o'clock, a bellboy, passing through the hall, smelled gas and made a quick investigation. He decided it came from Henley's place and rapped on the door. There was no answer. It ultimately developed that it was necessary to smash in the door. There on the bed they found Henley unconscious with the gas pouring into the room from the jet which he had left lighted. He was revived in the air, but for several hours was deathly sick. Why was the door smashed in? asked the thinking machine. Why not unlocked? It was done because Henley had firmly barred it, Hatch explained. He had become suspicious, I suppose, and after the second time he always barred his door and fastened every window before he went to sleep. There may have been a fear that someone used a key to enter. Well, asked the scientist, after that? Three weeks or so elapsed, bringing the affair down to this morning, Hatch went on. Then the same thing happened a little differently. For instance, after the third time the gas went out, Henley decided to find out for himself what caused it, and so expressed himself to a few friends who knew of the mystery. Then, night after night, he lighted the gas as usual and kept watch. It was never disturbed during all that time, burning steadily all night. What sleep he got was in daytime. Last night, Henley lay awake for a time, then, exhausted and tired, fell asleep. This morning early, he awoke. The room was filled with gas again. In some way, my city editor heard of it and asked me to look into the mystery. That was all. The two men were silent for a long time, and finally the thinking machine turned to the reporter. Does anyone else in the house keep gas going all night? he asked. I don't know, was the reply. Most of them, I know, use electricity. Nobody else has been overcome as he has been? No. Plumbers have minutely examined the lighting system all over the house and found nothing wrong. Does the gas in the house all come through the same meter? Yes, so the manager told me. This meter, a big one, is just off the engine room. I supposed it possible that someone shut it off there on these nights long enough to extinguish the lights all over the house then turned it on again. That is, presuming that it was done purposely. Do you think it was an attempt to kill Henley? It might be, was the reply. Find out for me just who in the house uses gas. Also, if anyone else leaves a light burning all night. Also, what opportunity anyone would have to get at the meter. And then something about Henley's love affair with Miss Lipscomb. Is there anyone else? If so, who? Where does he live? 
When you find out these things, come back here. That afternoon at one o'clock, Hatch returned to the apartments of the thinking machine, with excitement plainly apparent on his face. Well? asked the scientist. A French girl, Louise Renier, employed as a maid by Mrs. Standing in the house, was found dead in her room on the third floor today at noon, Hatch explained quickly. It looks like suicide. How? asked the thinking machine. The people who employed her, husband and wife, have been away for a couple of days, Hatch rushed on. She was in the suite alone. This noon she had not appeared. There was an odor of gas and the door was broken in. Then she was found dead. With the gas turned on? With the gas turned on. She was asphyxiated. Dear me, dear me, exclaimed the scientist. He arose and took up his hat. Let's go see what this is all about. Chapter 2 When Professor Van Dusen and Hatch arrived at the apartment house, they had been preceded by the medical examiner and the police. Detective Mallory, whom both knew, was moving about in the apartment where the girl had been found dead. The body had been removed and a telegram sent to her employers in New York. Too late, said Mallory as they entered. What was it, Mr. Mallory? asked the scientist. Suicide, was the reply. No question of it. It happened in this room, and he led the way into the third room of the suite. The maid, Miss Renier, occupied this, and was here alone last night. Mr. and Mrs. Standing, her employers, have gone to New York for a few days. She was left alone and killed herself. Without further questioning, the thinking machine went over to the bed, from which the girl's body had been taken, and, stooping beside it, picked up a book. It was a novel by the Duchess. He examined this critically, then, standing on a chair, he examined the gas jet. This done, he stepped down and went to the window of the little room. Finally, the thinking machine turned to the detective. Just how much was the gas turned on? he asked. Turned on full, was the reply. Were both the doors of the room closed? Both, yes. Any cotton or cloth or anything of the sort stuffed in the cracks of the window? No. It's a tight-fitting window anyway. Are you trying to make a mystery out of this? Cracks in the doors stuffed? The thinking machine went on. No. There was a smile about the detective's lips. The thinking machine, on his knees, examined the bottom of one of the doors, that which led into the hall. The lock of this door had been broken when employees burst into the room. Having satisfied himself here and at the bottom of the other door, which connected with the bedroom adjoining, the thinking machine again climbed on a chair and examined the doors at the top. Both transoms closed, I suppose? he asked. Yes, was the reply. You can't make anything but suicide out of it, explained the detective. The medical examiner has given that as his opinion, and everything I find indicates it. All right, 
broke in the thinking machine abruptly. Don't let us keep you. After a while, Detective Mallory went away. Hatch and the scientist went down to the office floor where they saw the manager. He seemed to be greatly distressed, but was willing to do anything he could in the matter. Is your night engineer perfectly trustworthy? asked the thinking machine. Perfectly, was the reply. One of the best and most reliable men I ever met. Alert and wide awake. Can I see him a moment? The nightman, I mean. Certainly, was the reply. He's downstairs. He sleeps there. He's probably up by this time. He sleeps usually till one o'clock in the daytime, being up all night. Do you supply gas for your tenants? Both gas and electricity are included in the rent of the suites. Tenants may use one or both. And the gas all comes through one meter? Yes, one meter. It's just off the engine room. I suppose there's no way of telling just who in the house uses gas? No. Some do and some don't. I don't know. This was what Hatch had told the scientist. Now together they went to the basement, and there met the night engineer, Charles Burlingame, a tall, powerful, clean-cut man of alert manner and positive speech. He gazed with a little amusement at the slender, almost childish figure of the thinking machine and the grotesquely large head. "'You are in the engine room, or near it, all night, every night?' began the thinking machine. "'I haven't missed a night in four years,' was the reply. "'Anybody ever come here to see you at night?' "'Never. It's against the rules.' "'The manager, or a hall boy?' "'Never.' "'In the last two months?' the thinking machine persisted. "'Not in the last two years,' was the positive reply. "'I go on duty every night at seven o'clock, "'and I am on duty until seven in the morning. "'I don't believe I've seen anybody in the basement here with me "'between those hours for a year at least.' "'The thinking machine was squinting steadily into the eyes of the engineer, "'and for a time both were silent.' Hatch moved about the scrupulously clean engine room and nodded to the day engineer, who sat leaning back against the wall. "'Have you a fireman?' was the thinking machine's next question. "'No, I fire myself,' said the nightman. "'Here's the coal.' And he indicated a bin within half a dozen feet of the mouth of the boiler. "'I don't suppose you ever had occasion to handle the gas meter?' insisted the thinking machine. "'Never touched it in my life,' said the other. "'I don't know anything about meters anyway.' "'And you never drop off to sleep at night for a few minutes when you get lonely? Doze, I mean?' The engineer grinned good-naturedly. "'Never had any desire to, and besides, I wouldn't have the chance,' he explained. "'There's a time check here,' and he indicated it. I have to punch that every half hour all night to prove that I have been awake. Dear me, dear me, exclaimed the thinking machine irritably. He went over and examined the time check. A revolving paper disc with hours marked on it, made to move by the action of a clock, the face of which showed in the middle. Besides, there's the steam gauge to watch, went on the engineer. No engineer would dare go to sleep. 
There might be an explosion. Do you know Mr. Weldon Henley? suddenly asked the thinking machine. Who? asked Burlingame. Weldon Henley? No, was the slow response. Never heard of him. Who is he? One of the tenants, on the second floor, I think. Lord, I don't know any of the tenants. What about him? When does the inspector come here to read the meter? I never saw him. I presume in daytime, eh, Bill? And he turned to the day engineer. Always in daytime, usually about noon, said Bill from his corner. Any other entrance to the basement except this way? And you could see anyone coming here this way, I suppose? Sure, I could see him. There's no other entrance to the cellar except the coal hole in the sidewalk in front. Two big electric lights in front of the building, aren't there? Yes, they go all night. A slightly puzzled expression crept into the eyes of the thinking machine. Hatch knew from the persistency of the questions that he was not satisfied. Yet he was not able to fathom or to understand all the queries. In some way, they had to do with the possibility of someone having access to the meter. "'Where do you usually sit at night here?' was the next question. "'Over there, where Bill's sitting. I always sit there.' The thinking machine crossed the room to Bill, a typical grimy-handed man of his class. "'May I sit there a moment?' he asked. Bill arose lazily, and the thinking machine sank down into the chair. From this point, he could see plainly through the opening into the basement proper. There was no door. The gas meter of enormous proportions through which all the gas in the house passed. An electric light in the door made it bright as daylight. The thinking machine noted these things, arose, nodded his thanks to the two men, and, still with the puzzled expression on his face, led the way upstairs. There the manager was still in his office. "'I presume you examine and know that the time check in the engineer's room is properly punched every half hour during the night?' he asked. "'Yes, I examine the dial every day. Have them here, in fact, each with the date on it. May I see them?' Now the manager was puzzled. He produced the cards, one for each day, and for half an hour the thinking machine studied them minutely. At the end of that time, when he arose and Hatch looked at him inquiringly, he saw still the puzzled expression. After urgent solicitation, the manager admitted them to the apartments of Weldon Henley, Mr. Henley himself had gone to his office in State Street. Here, the thinking machine did several things which aroused the curiosity of the manager, one of which was to minutely study the gas jets. Then the thinking machine opened one of the front windows and glanced out into the street. Below fifteen feet was the sidewalk. Above was the solid front of the building, broken only by a flagpole which, properly roped, extended from the hall window of the next floor above out over the sidewalk, a distance of twelve feet or so. "'Ever use that flagpole?' he asked the manager. "'Rarely,' said the manager. 
on holidays sometimes. Fourth of July and such times, we have a big flag for it. From the apartments, the thinking machine led the way to the hall, up the stairs, and to the flagpole. Leaning out of this window, he looked down toward the window of the apartments he had just left. Then he inspected the rope of the flagpole, drawing it through his slender hands slowly and carefully. At last, he picked off a slender thread of scarlet and examined it. Ah! he exclaimed. Then to Hatch. Let's go, Mr. Hatch. Thank you. This last to the manager, who had been a puzzled witness. Once on the street, side by side with the thinking machine, Hatch was bursting with questions, but he didn't ask them. He knew it would be useless. At last, the thinking machine broke the silence. That girl, Miss Renier, was murdered, he said suddenly, positively. There have been four attempts to murder Henley. How? asked Hatch, startled. By a scheme so simple that neither you nor I nor the police had ever heard of it being employed, was the astonishing reply. It is perfectly horrible in its simplicity. What was it? Hatch insisted, eagerly. It would be futile to discuss that now, was the rejoinder. There has been murder. We know how. Now the question is, who? What person would have a motive to kill Henley? That's it for this installment of Calm Mystery. Why is there a scarlet thread on the flagpole of an apartment building? Who does it belong to? What's it for? How does it tie in to one murder and one attempted murderer? Find out soon, right here, on Calm Mystery. Presented by American Immersion Theater and the Murder Mystery Company. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, Maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.